0: All right. Well, good morning, Embassy Church. It's good to be back with you guys again. I know you can hear me because I can hear myself loud and clear. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I would invite you to open them to Psalm 46 as we continue our series in the book of Psalms this morning. Before we do that, let me open us in a word of prayer as we're turning to Psalm 46 in our Bibles. Father in heaven, Lord, we Thank you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together. And Lord, we thank you above that for the reality that, oh God, you are in the midst of your people. Lord, what greater truth could there be than the presence of the Almighty among your people? And so, Lord, we pray this morning that, Lord, what we hear would glorify your name that you would use it in such a way so as to transform us more into your image to restore O god our humanity that has been tarnished by the taint of sin we thank you for christ our redeemer who makes this possible for the gift of the holy spirit O lord we pray that you would lead us now by your spirit in jesus name amen Well, before we jump into Psalm 46, I wanted to share with you guys some words from a song from a group, the Gray Havens. They're actually a somewhat local group. They began in Crystal Lake, Illinois, so just up the road from us here in Palatine. But in their song, Endless Summer, they begin with these words. Have you ever missed somewhere that you've never been before? Like there's a memory there, except you don't remember anymore. I feel a weight in the silence, and when the night starts getting cold. And it's been like that for a long, long time. And I heard we got a longer way to go. Now this song and the entire album have been deeply influenced by the writing and by the life of C.S. Lewis. And these lines speak about an intuition within humanity which has made the Narnia series radically successful. It speaks to our innate desire for a better, a purer, and a more true world than we inhabit right now. And that's what this psalm is all about, friends. This psalm is about the city of God. The more true, the more real, and the more glorious city wherein the Most High God dwells. And so this week, I do in fact have a big idea, and I have a big idea because I was graciously uh, talked to after the service last week, and so, uh, and reminded, because I used to have a big idea at Gospel Grace Church too, I didn't have one last week, and so I had the question, Pastor Nate, did you have a big idea? And I said, oh no, as a matter of fact, I didn't. So Abel, thank you, my friend, this morning. Hey, by the way, the fact that somebody Abel's age is asking about that, come on, we can rejoice in that, can't we? So here's the big idea this morning. Now, keep in mind, when I shared it with these guys downstairs at the breakfast hour, they said, oh, wow, that's long. And I said, well, Abel, you asked me if I had a big idea, not a small idea. So here we go. The big idea for this week is, in Jesus Christ, God is our refuge in our troubles by making us citizens of the city of God in order that we may behold his saving works and rest in him. Yes, it is a long big idea. It's like, you know, the whole sermon right there. Let me read it again for you guys. In Jesus Christ, God is our refuge in our troubles by making us citizens of the city of God in order that we may behold his saving works and rest in him. Now, if you don't have that, the thrust of that big idea will come out in the sermon. I want to inf- unfold it this morning in three sections. And each section that we work into is going to answer a question for us. So the first question is going to be the what question. What is being conveyed in this psalm? What is kind of the, the heartbeat of this psalm? And the answer is this God is a refuge, and then this word is critical in our troubles. God is a refuge in our troubles, and so that's the what question. The how question, how is God our help in our trouble? And the answer is by granting us access to the city of God. By granting us access to the city of God. And the third question is the why question. Well, why is God our help in our troubles? By granting us access to the city of God. Why is this so? And the answer is So that we might behold his works and rest in him. So like we did last week, I will read the text that we are dealing with and then uh, work through it. So as we look at the what question in verses 1 through 3, would you read along with me? Psalm 46, 1 through 3. The psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Now there are two things in this first section that I would like us to focus on this morning. Number one, the transcendent God makes himself present to his people this god this one who is absolutely beyond us in every way imaginable and not only that beyond us in ways that we could never even imagine this god allows himself to be present to his people so that's the first thing we're going to look at the second thing is this he's present to us in a very unique and special way in our trouble He's present to us in struggle and trouble in a way that he's not present to us outside of it. Now, embedded within this first verse of our psalm today is a truth that lies at the very center of the Bible's revelation about God. This is getting back to our first point. This God who is transcendent beyond us, again, in every possible way, he has made himself present to us this lies at the heart of biblical revelation about who our God is now the fact that God is transcendent beyond us I think comes out especially clear in Solomon's prayer as he dedicates the temple that is newly built so I'm reading here from 1st Kings chapter 8 verse 27 you can turn there if you like but I'm going to go through it pretty quick we read this Solomon says this but will God indeed dwell on the earth Behold, the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built for you. Now, the Temple of Solomon, though it wasn't one of the original seven wonders of the ancient world, was in fact added to this list later on because of the sheer grandeur of this temple. There has never been something like the Temple of Solomon, ornate, beyond what you could imagine, and yet Solomon proclaims the absolute insanity of thinking that God could actually be contained in this temple. Even though the temple in every way was meant to stimulate the senses, was meant to help us to understand just something of the grandeur of God, Solomon says there's no way that this could contain God. Now this is right in line with what we hear the Lord say in Isaiah 66 verse 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? in what is the place of my rest so not only is the temple unable to contain god but the totality of the earth and now keep in mind in the ancient world there's not airplanes and automobiles which make the earth seem smaller right the totality of the earth which for an ancient thinker would have been a vast unsearchable domain it is akin To simply a footstool for God and the heavens the heavens are a an infinite vast expanse and God says this is how I want you to think about my throne and so the reality that we're faced with here is with a God who is transcendent who is beyond us who is larger infinitely large larger than anything that we could ever imagine and it is this transcendent God who in verse 1 is said to be a very present help in our trouble. Now this word present that the the psalmist uses here this is a word that speaks to being found to being discovered the God who is beyond us, who transcends us in every imaginable way and many other ways that our minds cannot even comprehend, this God allows himself to be found by us. The transcendent, uncontainable God becomes present to us. The ruler of heaven becomes the helper of his people on earth. And the one who is arrayed in the splendor of the galaxies is our refuge and strength in our trouble. Which brings us to the second aspect of our verse this morning. That God is a very present help in our trouble. There is a unique manner in which the creator of all reality is present to his people as savior. The creator, the one who speaks the world into existence, who flings the galaxies into existence by his will and by his word, is uniquely present to his people in our trouble. He makes himself known in a unique way, not just as creator, but as savior. Now, I know that none of us like hardship's troubles or difficult trials and as brothers and sisters we rightly pray for each other to be delivered from our trials and we should continue to do so we long for the day as we heard in revelation 22 when suffering pain and hardships are completely swallowed up in the victory of our blessed lord jesus and yet and yet with that truth being maintained the psalmist is clear that god is Our very present help in our troubles in the midst of our troubles in other words this great this transcendent this magnificent God is very present uniquely present with us when we are in our trouble see friends God allows himself to be found by his people in an extraordinary manner when we are in trouble And again, what I don't want anybody to hear me doing is I'm not trying to diminish anybody's struggles. If you've lived long enough, you've struggled, and many of us have struggled greatly at times in our life. Your struggles are real. The pain that you feel is real. We never want to diminish that. It's hard to be in struggles. But what I am trying to do is allow us not simply to see past the struggles, I think sometimes we think of struggles that way. Like you think of the Olympics, right? And and struggles, I think, in our mind become the hurdles that we simply need to get over to get to the end. What I'm hoping to do with this is to help us see God in the struggles. Because if we simply try to look past the struggle, then we will look through the God who is present in a unique way in the struggle. Pain, whether it's emotional physical psychological you name it pain hardship they can be blinding realities in our life and they can cause us pain can cause us to be radically unaware of anything but itself have you ever found yourself in that kind of a situation where the suffering that you're going through is so intense that it causes us to be radically unaware of anything but that And what happens is When this happens, it consumes us. We can be consumed by our pains and our struggles. And as we're consumed by these things, we are inevitably robbed of our joy. We move towards hopelessness and despair when all we can see is the struggle. But friends, God is revealing something about himself to us in this text this morning. He is revealing to us that In our trouble through the very hardships that we endure he is making himself present to us in a unique manner now i think that we can look at this text like we've been doing in terms of the individual that's what i've been doing god is the very present help of each of his children individually in our times of pain and trouble But I think that we must also understand this corporately, communally, in a bigger picture of what the scripture is teaching us. We need to understand this in view of humanity and the trouble that humanity has found and placed itself in. You see, humanity was created for communion with God. We were created for life in the presence of God, and we were animated by the very breath or spirit of God. This is what animates humanity. But sin has exiled us from God's presence. It drove us further and further from our eternal blessedness and our eternal life. Sin has driven us further and further from God himself. And exiled from everything that we were made for, we have been exiled from true happiness, true hope, and true health. And so I want to read for us again verses 2 and 3 and pick up on some of the language the psalmist uses here. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Now, what we have here with this imagery is we have a picture of decreation. The mountains and the dry land, if you remember from Genesis 1, emerged from the waters. And so the imagery that we have here before us where the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, this is the reversal of creation, or we might say it is a de-creation. It's the same imagery in a sense that was used in the flood. When the waters of the earth cover the mountain, it is an inverse. It is an undoing of how God created, and we're supposed to see it that way. That what sin does is it decreates. It moves away from God's goodness. But this imagery, I think, is also to be understood in a way of mankind. You see, we are the pinnacle of God's creation because we bear the very image of God himself in us. And yet, after the entrance of sin into the world, humanity itself has been on a journey of decreation. You see, the further that we move from God, the further we decreate ourselves as humans. Why? Because to be a human is, by definition, to bear the image of God. You see, sin is the decreation of humanity. It is the destruction of the image of God which is fundamental to humanity as humanity. And I think that this decreation of humanity as we move further and further away from God is unfolding before our eyes in a graphic and concrete way in our society. As our society relentlessly pushes for the normalization of humanity's decreation through the new morality and through the radically anti nature or anti natural understanding. Or misunderstanding of gender and sexuality. You see, the further we move from God, what we're doing is we are moving further and further away from what it actually means to be humanity. And so, again, sin is the decreation of humanity. It is the destruction of the image of God, which is fundamental to humanity as humanity. And as I wrote that this week, I thought, that's a terrifying thought. And you know why? Because I participate in sin. Because of my relationship to Adam, I'm born into sin and I commit sin. And sin is the very decreation of who we are. It is the dismantling of our very nature and existence as those who bear the image of God. But God. God is is said to be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in our trouble. And where have we seen God be this most clearly and most powerfully? We have seen it in the incarnation, the death, and the exaltation of our blessed Lord Jesus. You see, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, But then in verses 4 through 7, in Ephesians 2, we read this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness us in Christ. You see, friends, in Jesus Christ, God has become the fullness of our very present help in our trouble. Without Jesus, none of us get out of the trouble that humanity finds itself in. God has met humanity in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus precisely in the troubled state of decreation and dehumanization based on the sin that moves us away from God and God did not meet us before sin I mean he was in the garden don't hear me wrongly but God meets us doesn't he in a unique way he calls us to Christ he comes to us as savior precisely in our troubles and he has done so in such a powerful and profound way that as the psalmist says we do not have to fear any trouble which comes upon us why because we know that God is our help in our trouble and if we ever question that all we have to do is look to the cross while we were still sinners Christ died for us and in the same manner That the most troubled state of humanity, the state of decreation and dehumanization because of sin, in the same manner that in this most troubled state, God came to us and he brought about his presence as helper, and it led him to join himself eternally to humanity in Jesus, so too individually in our trials and struggles, there is an avenue of God's presence that is opened up to us that we could not experience otherwise. So we've seen in this opening section how God has, in infinite grace and mercy, come to us in our trouble, in our trouble. But friends, God has not only come to us, he has come to us, he has descended to us that we might ascend to him. You see, in the person of Christ, God has descended that we might ascend into his presence so that we might experience something of what the psalmist will call the city of God the city which all creation was meant to be and one day will be, which is to say the temple city which is inhabited by the Most High God. This brings us now to verses 4 through 7. And we ask again this, the how question. How has God become our very present help in our trouble? Well, he has become that By granting us access to the city of God. Verses 4 through 7 in Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Now, this is about the city of God. It's about a city which, as we will see, we, friends, have been granted access to, even as we wait for its final consummation and coming. You, I, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been granted access to this city right now. Now, in the scriptures, cities are places of the earth which have been constructed or cultivated, in a manner of speaking, so as to be inhabited by humanity. But verses 4 through 7 paint a picture which transcends any earthly city precisely because this is the city of God. What underlies this section, and really, I think what underlies really the totality of scripture and all of reality is the notion that there is an unseen realm, there is an unseen reality, which is in fact more real, more necessary, and more desirable than anything that we could apprehend with our senses here and now. There is a city, not an earthly city, but a city far, far more real, far more true, far more beautiful than we could ever imagine And there is a city which is, in fact, the holy habitation of the Most High God. And because God is in the midst of this city, the psalmist says that it cannot be moved. The city of God, unlike all the cities here, think about the the cities that we're a part of, the changing political dynamics and the power structures and the struggles and all of these things, but the city of God cannot be moved, is not subject to change. It will not undergo the decomposition, the decay, the destruction that we see in our earthly cities due to sin. You see, this set city stands far above the raging of the nations, the tottering of the kingdoms. This is, in this city, the place from which God utters his powerful and majestic voice and melts the earth along with the wicked cities and the rulers which make it up. Which is why, as verse 2 says... We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Friends, we do not need to fear this because we have been granted access to the city of God. And no matter what happens here on earth, no matter how tumultuous things get here on earth, the city of God cannot be moved Because it is God's city. And God, friends, God is the immovable mover of all things. God is the uncaused cause of all things. And God is the sure and steadfast fortress against which nothing can prevail. This city, while it cannot be seen with the eyes, while it cannot be reached by plane, train, automobile, it is a city that we nonetheless have access to through Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews picks up on this powerfully when he says in chapter 12 beginning in verses 18 and 19, speaking now to the new covenant people, the author of Hebrews says, for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. This is here speaking of what oftentimes is called the Sinai Theophany or where God met his people on Mount Sinai that the mountain could be touched. God was able to be seen in, in, in his activity of the thunder and all of that but that's not where we've been called the author says. Picking up in chapter 12, verse 22, he says this, But you, you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see friends our mediator Jesus has descended to us he has taken our sin and our shame and he has done so that we might in him ascend to the heights of God to dwell in the city of God and to rejoice in the glory of God. We have been raised up to experience something of a truer reality, something of a more fundamental existence. We have joined the company of angels in festal gathering, the author says. We have come to and are made one with the saints in heaven. And we have been brought to God who is the judge of all. And we are now lifted up with the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. And we have been brought to Jesus who by his death is the mediator of a new and better covenant i wonder friends today as we lifted our voices to sing praise to our god did we realize that we did so in the company of angels and archangels that we raised our voices in the company of the holy prophets and the apostles and we lifted our voice with the entire company of all the saints from the beginning of time until now that's what the author of hebrews is telling us But, friends, most incredibly and most humbling, we have lifted our voices with him who speaks a better word, a truer word, a more real word than anything that could be spoken here. We raise our voices with, for, and in the presence of our Savior, Jesus. This is what he's done for us. He has descended to us that we might ascend with him. This is what it means that we have been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus descended to the earthly Jerusalem to give his life for our sakes, that we might ascend in him and with him to the heavenly Jerusalem where our hope is fulfilled in the very presence of God. Where The Spirit of God, the Spirit who Jesus spoke of in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, as rivers of living water, we have been ascended with Jesus where the Spirit of God makes glad the city of God. Listen to verse 4 again. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And this river imagery is picked up by Jesus himself and the New Testament authors to speak of the Spirit. And I'm reminded of Romans 5, 5, where it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, friends, in the city of God, the river of the Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts more and more, which is precisely what makes the city happy. Nothing, nothing will make you happier than the love of God. And so if you're struggling today, If you've faced a great trial, or perhaps some of you are saying, "Uh, Nate, listen, not just a trial, but trial after trial after trial, well, please, friends, remember that in your trouble, in your trouble, God will draw near to you in a unique, powerful, and extraordinary way. I pray that you would look in the trial to the God who is nearer to you than he may have ever been before the trial. Look not through the pain. Look in the pain to the God who descends to bear the pain and grief of this world, the sin and the shame of this world. Look in the pain to the God who descended to us that we might ascend to him and be glad in the city of God. But finally, why? Why has God done all of this? To what end Has God done this? To what end is he our very present help? To what end has he granted us access to the city of God? Well he has done so that we might behold his works and in beholding his works rest in him. Verses 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And one of my favorite verses, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now, I think it's important to note that the first thing this section calls us to do, verse 8, is to come. Before, friends, we can behold the works of the Lord, Before before, before we can behold, we must first come. Before we can be transformed by the gracious and powerful works of the Lord, the call is simple. We must come to the Lord. But if we're not careful, all of us can become misguided in our pursuits. When we come to behold the works of the Lord, friends, we come to behold the God who actively works in the midst of his people. When we come to hear a sermon, and we heard about this at the breakfast hour this morning, actually, when we come to hear a sermon, to sing praises to our God, our primary intention or purpose should not be to simply learn more facts about God, but we should come to meet the God who speaks to us through his word. See, we behold the works of God as we encounter the God who works. We behold the works of God as we encounter the God who works because the works apart from God are meaningless because as humans, our goal, what we've been created for is God himself. And this is a little bit of what you might catch in John's gospel when Jesus says, I did these miracles, but you guys didn't see any signs. If it doesn't lead us to God, then we've missed it. Now, I do love the relationship between verses eight and nine. Verse eight, come behold the works of the Lord and then this, how he has brought desolations on the earth. And you think, not well, that, that does not sound great at all. But notice the way that the desolations are described in verse 9. What is it that the Lord will desolate on the earth? What is it that God will destroy on the earth? Verse 9, he makes wars to cease. the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You see, in the person of Christ, God has broken down the dividing wall between every kind of person, everything that would lead to war, broken down in Jesus, no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer barbarian or Scythian, no longer rich, poor, slave, free, male, female, all of these things that in sin have divided humanity, Christ has come, died for us, that he might break down those walls and unite us again. So what is it that he demolishes on earth? War, strife, envy, in a word, sin, friends. You see, God will destroy will bring desolation to all war and to every instrument of destruction. They will be shattered and absolutely destroyed because the heavenly city allows for nothing other than perfect peace, joy, and happiness in the presence of God. So are you struggling today? Are you anxious about some conflict or turmoil in your life? Are you lamenting the brokenness of the world which leads to seemingly unending strife and turmoil? Are you guilty perhaps about the past, whatever it may be? Then I pray, hear these words in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Friends, you can be still your heart and your soul can rest because God has indeed been exalted among the nations. God has indeed been exalted above the earth in the person of Christ. Remember the words of Jesus, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. The Lord is with us. Friends, Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus descended to us that we might ascend to him, that we might have access even here and now to the city of God. We wait for its full consummation. Well, heaven and earth become one, but right now we have access to the city of God where the spirit of God makes glad this city and where we do not have to fear anything in our cities because we have a better city. As the author of Hebrews said, not constructed with human hands, but a city constructed and built by God himself. But friends, remember, before your heart can be still, before you can rest in Christ and his city, you must first come to him. For some of us today, there are things holding us back from coming to the Lord. There may be aspects of our past, there may be desires in our future that if we think we come to him, we'll have to give those up. And you know what? You may be right, but whatever you give up for the Lord, he will give to you in spades. There is no greater trade than divesting yourself of everything that you have for Jesus, like the parable of the man who found the the treasure in the field, and he went and sold everything he had. Why? Because what he could purchase by getting rid of his old identity, everything about who he was, was so infinitely more valuable than the totality of all that he ever had before. He not only gets rid of it, but he does it gladly before we can rest, we must come. Now, to come to Christ is to make him the first pursuit of your life. It is to make him the singular pursuit of your life, which means that Jesus becomes everything. Now, that doesn't mean that other things aren't there. It simply means this. Think about your family if you make jesus the single pursuit of your life you love your family as a means of pursuing jesus we seek righteousness righteous living not because we fear that if we don't god will smash the hammer on us that's a that's a works-based way of viewing things we seek righteousness because we believe they're the pathways to christ that we might know him more We speak truth because in speaking truth, we are drawn inevitably closer to him who is truth. We come to church to grow closer to Christ. Rest in Christ, friends, requires the presence of Christ. So I would encourage you as I pray in just a second, and before we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, if you have perhaps relegated Jesus to the periphery of your life and your pursuits lately, and we've all been there, I would encourage you to repent. And if you remember last week, we talked about repentance as first and foremost, an act of love towards Christ. If Jesus has been relegated to the periphery, I would encourage you to repent and then to joyfully come and behold him in the symbols that we have before us this morning of his broken body, and his shed blood. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the love with which you have loved us. We thank you for the gift of Christ, for the gift of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you that Jesus has descended to us, that we might ascend to the city of God. And Lord, I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in his name. Amen.